One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The entire nation watched riveted as Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We discuss our reactions and share our conversation with Missouri State Representative Crystal Quaid. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We spent the day immersed, as much of the nation did, in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which we are going to talk about. And following that, we're going to leave you with something more inspiring. We have a conversation to share with Crystal Quaid, a state representative in Missouri, who is really, really intelligent and thoughtful, especially about poverty issues. And so we will leave you with something inspiring But first, we will process the events of the Kavanaugh hearing. Because I got nothing inspiring to say about that. I feel incredibly emotionally fragile and exhausted. How about you? I've been all over the place today a little bit. I started the day with what I would describe as a steely resolve. And I was just trying to really listen and pay attention and tweet. I was live tweeting and I wanted to really develop for myself as much as anyone else kind of an accurate record of what occurred. And then I had to switch to listening in my car for a bit. And when I think it was Senator Blumenthal said, I believe you, that kind of broke me. And so then I was kind of a mess for a while. And I feel like I got it back together 
Then I got super angry and yelled at John Cornyn in my living room, and that's where I've been a little bit since then. I started crying the second she opened her mouth. Something about hearing her voice, and you could hear... See, I'm already crying. Y'all just get the Kleenex. It's going to be a long ride. I could hear her trauma. I could hear her nerves. I could just hear her not wanting to be there. Like, I didn't want her there. She didn't want to be there. And I just, my heart broke for her and having to listen to her, not just, like, having to listen to her describe the trauma, having having to live the trauma, my heart broke for that, and then just compounding it all with her coming and grassly starting with this soliloquy about how the Democrats said on this and just continuing that sort of, they don't care about you. That's why they sat on this for so long. Just, it was so infuriating and she handled it so well. And like her graciousness to them over and over again was simultaneously gratifying and infuriating because I thought, See, you, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get her. And then also, like, she should be able to get up there and cry and scream and yell. They all did. Every Republican man up there got up there and screamed and yelled, and he cried a bunch. So I just, oh, I was just so impressed by her, but also heartbroken on her behalf. It was really something that she had more emotional composure than lots of the people there today. Mm-hmm. And she certainly did. And I also thought it was interesting and odd and sort of perspective shifting that she was able to speak with such expertise about memory and about how Mm -hmm. people process trauma while at the same time just telling her story. I think it was Anne Helen Peterson, your favorite, Sarah, who tweeted something about how it was almost like she was appearing as both expert and witness, Mm -hmm. which was a little disorienting and, and also I think added to how relatable she was and how credible I found her. Well, let me tell you what else was disorienting. Let's pull up this giant map and talk about the mileage between these locations. Oh, wait, let's go back to talking about how brave and wonderful and fantastic you are. All true. Oh, wait, no, let's go back to the investigating. Music in the room. <laughs> oh, my God. Investigating your fear of flying. Let's prosecute that for a while. No, wait, five, five minutes are up. Let's go back to the talking about how, you know, what a testament you are and I mean, the the jumping back and forth between the prosecutor and the senators was such a truly terrible approach. Why they couldn't just say, we're going to condense because we're using the prosecutor, because we can't grow a pair and stand up here because we're all white men and ask her questions. We're going to jump back and forth like this. Like, who thought that was a good idea? Clearly, the prosecutor didn't because she said at one point, like, this is not how you do this. It was so reflective, along with Grassley's opening comments, of how this had all the classic problems that are associated with lots of public hearings in the United States Senate. And it was amplified because the consequences of it were so were so devastating. So like a lot of Senate hearings, there was no clear purpose today. I don't think there was a purpose of getting to any sort of truth. I don't think that there was a purpose of moving anyone's votes, really. Mm-hmm. I think from the Republican perspective, the purpose was 
maybe to try to discredit her carefully through this prosecutor whose role seemed very unclear to me. I I spent a good amount of brain power today thinking about how does this prosecutor understand her role as a lawyer here? What duties does she owe? Who is her client? How is Mm -hmm. she framing this up for herself, right? And I got to no clear answers on that. And so then because that wasn't working, obviously, the Republicans decided to make this all about what a villain Diane Feinstein is. I guess if we can't smear our female witness, we'll smear our female colleague. And it was just like so abundantly clear that they just jumped ship because they were all pissed off and it wouldn't work in and they needed somebody to, he wasn't getting defended properly. So they're like, I mean, I think she was still sitting there. It's not like they were like, okay, well, we're done with this end of the portion and now we're all going to pick up our five minutes. They just jumped ship. It was so, it was such a naked, obvious change of course, motivated for partisan purposes. And then the Democrats on the committee were all driving at, we need an FBI investigation, Mm -hmm. which was not an outcome that was going to happen in this hearing. And so just the whole thing was purposeless and yet incredibly fraught and had consequences all over the world. I mean, part of what I just wanted to say to every person who brought up the tactical elements of how this proceeded within the committee. I I wanted to just shake them and say, I get that that is a big deal to you. That is not a big deal outside this room. Mm -hmm. That is not a big deal outside of the echo chamber of political operatives that form your world. I don't know. I saw some Facebook posting about why they sit on it. If they really cared about her, they wouldn't sit on it. I saw that on Facebook from people that are not Beltway insiders. I want to talk about that. But trying to come up with that wedge issue to have to yeah. give people something to talk about really frustrates me. Outside of that, in America, though, like people are watching this hearing trying to decide who told the truth. And nobody in that room was trying to decide who was telling the truth. And it was so depressing to watch and so embarrassing for our country. Well, I think that they decided we can't attack her for not telling the truth. His hair splitting of, I am not attacking her, but I didn't do it. No, she said 100% certain it was you. So you either need to call her a liar or not, but you don't get to split hairs. You don't get to be a nice guy and say, I'm not attacking her, but I didn't do it. It doesn't work like that. Like, you need to pick a side. You can't have it both ways. And he wanted it both ways. And they all wanted it both ways. They want to make the Democrats the villain and not her. And not because they care. Because they know that's a losing strategy. And that's what pisses me off. Well, he could he could sort of have it both ways if he said something like, I do not remember this. It is true that I drank sometimes. I guess it is possible that something like this happened, but I have no memory of it. Mm. I don't understand why that is such a remote possibility. Because, like, I I could hear that and still think... I probably don't want you on the Supreme Court, but I heard a lot of things from him today that made me think, I don't want you on the Supreme Court, even if all of this is not true, which I don't believe. But let's say we established conclusively somehow that this was false. He said a lot of things today that I thought were very concerning, and I thought his whole temperament was really concerning today. He was belligerent. He was belligerent. And partisan. Incredibly partisan. Partisan. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, I want to do the, 
oh, my God, I'm so concerned for our institutions. And there's a part of me that has never believed the Supreme Court is anything but partisan. And so, you know, there's always a, there's always this voice inside my head in the Trump era that's like, at least all the cards are on the table now. At well, least we're being honest with each other. Bren tweeted today, we're in two, we live in two Americas and I wish we'd stop pretending otherwise. And I keep thinking about that so much today. Because you get on Twitter and you get on Facebook and it's like we live in two different worlds. A world where this woman came up and was highly credible and emotional and clearly traumatized. And this guy came up and was privileged and defensive and belligerent and partisan. And he is a saint and a patriot. And she is a saint and a patriot. And we cannot see past each other. And I don't know what to do about that. And I don't think that's, I think it's just more emotional and exposed at the Supreme Court level, but it's always been there. Bush v. Gore was as partisan as it gets. And going back to even before that, I mean, there's cases that uh, that other Supreme Court historians would say, well, it, start, it started way before that. And so I just, I'm so, I feel so despondent and hopeless in this moment, almost to the level that I did after the election. Because I do not know how we move forward as a country when we feel this way about each other. I just don't. Sorry, I took us to a really dark place. Well, I think that those reactions are so grounded in our unwillingness. Like, we've just become so cynical, right, about partisanship. It's so cynical when you dive right into, well, the Democrats or, well, the Republicans. I mean, we're we're so incapable of seeing past those partisan lenses. I think that we could start to move past some of this with some leaders willing to work on process. Because to me, one of the most key things that she said this morning— if you look past this and into the bigger picture, is when she saw the short short list of nominees and felt that it was important for her to come forward and let the president ultimately know what had happened to her before he chose his nominee, which I thought was really important information that came out today. Mm -hmm. She said, I didn't know the right way to do this. And I just hung on to those words and thought, that's right, we've never given anyone in any context a right way to do this. And because of that, every way every woman has ever chosen to do this has been labeled wrong. And so the first thing that I think our Congress could do is create some kind of structure. This is what you do when you have something to report about a government official or a government nominee. This is how we will confidentially examine your allegations and how we will confidentially start to begin an investigation. Because a lot of what we saw today, I think, we had the gamesmanship allegations from Republicans about the way that the Democrats on the committee have handled this. You also saw, no matter who you believe in this, that our media escalates everything to a level that That is so unhelpful. And again, I value journalism. I appreciate what journalists do. But there is a lot of media out there that is not journalism and that is just ramping up this partisanship. And it is appalling that either of these human beings and their families have endured death threats over this. Congress really owes it to the country, I think, to come up with some kind of process because Christine was not 
Christine Ford was not the first woman and will not be the last woman to be sitting in a chair like this. And we we could give people a way to do this. I think the very, let me say something despondent and cynical, and I swear I'll try to turn it around. I think the reason we don't have a process like that is because this process isn't for us, and it never has been. This process, as so many processes in our government and our Congress, is for the elites. It's not for the people. Our founding fathers were elites. They set it up that way. The electoral college is for the elites, not for the people. I think that they doubted our impulses. And sometimes when I'm on Twitter, I don't think they were wrong. But, you know, these processes weren't meant to be truly democratic. We're not voting on a Supreme Court justice. And you can tell that they don't even definitely don't believe it's democratic when they say things like this isn't a job interview. Well, then what is it? A knighting? Because it feels like that. It feels like you've just picked someone to elevate to the upper class and to knight and to put into the, the upper echelons because they deserve it, because they were born to it. And I am not foolish enough to think that we don't have that in America just because we're America. But I at least thought that we had processes and that we had at least pretended part of the time that wasn't the case. But that's how I mean, that's how I feel watching these sometimes. It's just like, and I think a lot of Americans feel like that. It's not about us. It's about them. And they don't feel like us, and they certainly didn't feel like us today, except for Dr. Ford, of course. It's kind of meandering, though, for me, because in a way— it feels wholly undemocratic and is supposed to be by design, as you said, especially with the Supreme Court. But a huge problem is that our senators aren't acting like the elite who go to make wise decisions for us. You have seen this evening mm-hmm. Joe Manchin put out a statement saying he is inclined to go with confirmation of Kavanaugh because that's what the majority of West Virginia wants. Mm-hmm. So I could use people acting like elites honestly, right now and saying, you know what, I'm going to exercise my own judgment here. It would be incredibly unpopular for me to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it. It would be incredibly unpopular for me to vote this way, but that's what I'm going to do because I think it's right. I would prefer some elitism compared to the the yelling, screaming, Fox News pandering that Lindsey Graham did today. It's just so frustrating because, look, that's not easy to do. I've done it. It sucks. And that And I would say, like, I would feel sympathy for them. And I would say, you know, that's easier said than done. It's really hard to do something, you know, so unpopular. But they do it all the time when they want to. Mm -hmm. They do it all the time when they want to. They will go against preexisting conditions you know, they don't, especially senators, clearly have no bones about that they that they are a, a member of a body that serves the American people and not just their voters. The president no longer thinks he serves anybody but his voters. I'm not really sure who's looking out for the American populace as a whole because nobody's acting like it. And, you know... It's so infuriating to hear, particularly in the Fox News pandering, this idea that our nominee has been treated so unfairly and you better watch out 
and you don't have any idea about process and, oh man, we're really going to get you next time and you better hope. And like when Lindsey Graham was like, well, I voted for Sotomayor and Kagan and you could just hear the fury in his voice. And I was literally screaming at my television, you're forgetting a name. You're forgetting Merrick Garland. How dare you act? Like you guys are the guardians of the process and you don't ever act in partisan ways when it comes to the Supreme Court. Oh, well, this is worse than Bork and I've never seen anything like this. I mean, it was crazy making. It made me feel like steam was coming out of my ears because my head was about to explode. And But again, I don't know how this stops. I don't know if the Democrats did play dirty with this process. Perhaps they did. And if they did, I wouldn't be mad because you did it too. And you're not going to be mad next time because you're going to say, well, they did it last time. And then what do we do? Chase each other down off a cliff doing this? Because that's what it feels like. But I'm so angry and upset right now. I don't even care because it's we're just slicing at each other. And I'm just not sure what's going to be left. I feel like America is like that knight in the Monty Python. I'm going to keep coming at you and they slice off your leg. Well, I'm really going to get you next time until he's just a bloody stump. It's how I feel today at the end of the day, like a bloody stump. Sorry, I said I was going to get hopeful. I swear I swear I am eventually. It's just I need to exercise some demons today after watching hours of this confirmation. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I struggle in this conversation because, again, I just want to think about what we're actually talking about. I had so much emotion during this hearing, but when I thought at the end of the day about it, I realized this is so much simpler than everyone has tried to make it. The truth is, you can't give, like, your county judge a Christmas present if it looks like it might influence the way that judge operates. We are so careful in the judiciary. Now, does that always work? No. Are there issues in the judiciary? Sure. But people are very, very careful about judicial ethics. And so for me, if we have a question, then it's done. We move on because it's worth it to our process because we don't want to be that bloody stump. And if we didn't have a question before today, we sure as hell after he went off about the democratic conspiracy How's a Democratic lawyer going to come before him on the Supreme Court? That's right. How how would he decide a case like Bush versus Gore after what he said today and, ha- and have any level of confidence in his decision? So if we have a question, we move on. And I think that's all we have to decide. And I don't want to repeat myself too much because we've had two episodes of me saying this now. And so then the other thing that I want to say is, like, we have got to figure out as a country a way to listen to allegations like this that that we can have some modicum of confidence in. Because it's true that we should not rush to judgment completely. It is also true that for far too long, we have ignored far too many people with very real stories. And we re-traumatize those people with very real stories every single time we have some kind of public fight about this stuff. And that is our work to do. Our senators have a ton of work to do. Today was an embarrassment. Here's my not nuanced thing. I'm ready to just evacuate Washington, D.C. and start over. And I mean start over not just with some of the people There are lots of people whose names we don't know who are there working very hard every day. I appreciate you. I see you. You keep doing what you do. But the people whose names we know, the people we have elected, I'm I'm done. I'm ready to start over. And I am done with the insular nature of this whole thing, the kind of environment that makes Orrin Hatch think it's okay for him to say that she was a very attractive woman to reporters during a break, the kind of environment that makes Lindsey Graham believe that this is all a partisan sham, that makes John Cornyn thinks it, think it's worse than McCarthy. Whatever. I'm done with all of that. I think it's crazy-making and ridiculous and serves absolutely no one. So there is work to do in our government. But, man, on the cultural side, the fact that we cannot 
just calmly discuss these things without feeling like we have got to convict someone or acquit someone. And those are our only two options. Like that is some emotional maturity work that we all need to dig right into. I do want to say my hopeful thing about the senators themselves before I respond to our cultural point. Before, I would like to allow Amy Klobuchar to stay in the building. Agreed. I would like to make a motion for that because... Second. The motion or the moment where he said, I mean, he basically said, I appreciate you, which I thought was very telling. And she said, thank you. And she questioned him. And then he did that incredibly rude thing where he said, have you ever been blackout drunk? He did that a couple times, but he did it specifically with her. I don't know who gave him the advice to talk about how much he likes beer and then to get in and to just do this thing like, well, don't you drink? But it was terrible advice. That aside, the moment where I had a brief, brief glimmer of hope in humanity is when he came back and he apologized to her. And I think you saw in that moment what we talk about all the time, which was when they started talking, you could see that he, she had built, and I don't know how, some sort of relationship and rapport with him. And he valued that. And he left and saw, but I was upset and I overstepped something with a person whose relation, a relationship with which I value. And he came back and he apologized. It was a small moment, but it was worth it. You know what I think made that moment possible? She doesn't grandstand. No. She she was asking questions. Mm-hmm. And not with a tone where she wanted everyone to tweet her moment out. Mm-hmm. You know, she just conducts herself like a professional. And in a way, it illustrates how simple it would be for all of this to turn around. Yeah. And that gives me hope. Like, I look at this and I think, this is bananas. And we have lots of people in America who can go do better than this. Yeah. Well, and I will say that I do not think that Kamala Harris's approach was similar I won't call it grandstanding. I think she was incredibly forceful with her questioning. What was so amazing to me is that they were actually productive and helpful questions. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to stand up there and say, I've been a prosecutor, then ask something helpful with all due respect. And when she, I felt, you know, fully represented in that moment when she said, Agree? Do you agree or disagree that a man can be a friend and still be abusive to women? A friend to women and abusive to women. Because he did that for so long in his opening statement. I got female friends. I like girls. Like, And so when she did that and she said, can you agree? And he had a terrible answer. And then when she said, did you watch her testimony? I mean, I said when he started, I, th- I got on Instagram and I said, did he watch her testimony? I don't think he did. Because if he had, he wouldn't come out like this. And so when she, I mean, I was like, again, screaming, thank you. Like, did you see what she said? Because you're not answering her testimony right now. You're not responding at all. Did you see this evening that the Wall Street Journal is reporting that he did, in fact, watch her testimony? What? Why would he lie? I don't know. Well, wait. And I don't I don't know that he did lie, but I saw that. I, I, don't, I don't know what's true there, but uh. I saw that there's that inconsistency with his testimony in response to Senator Harris. Oh, my gosh. So to your point about the bigger culture, about who should be believed and our conversations about sexual accusations. 
the next person who looks at me as a mother of three boys and says, imagine it was your son. I cannot be held responsible for how I react. I am so tired of that bullshit. I cannot see straight. I love my children. But I have a responsibility bigger than being their mother. We all do. I have a responsibility to the world I craft for them to live in. There are more people on this planet than them. I hold values that go beyond my love for them. Values of justice and fairness. And I don't live in a world in which I parent in response to very small risks, no matter how scary they are. I don't send them out the door every day saying, you better beware of kidnappers because that is a minute risk. And I will not talk to them about issues of sexual activity and sexual consent with, you better beware of false accusations because that is a very small risk. I will not have conversations with them. I will not make decisions with them. I will not raise them to be concerned about false accusations and to treat every woman who comes to them, interacts with them, or talks about sexual assault as if she is to be doubted. Their actions are their responsibility alone. And they will, could perhaps, bump up into people that will not respond the way they should or the way, they, the way that is right or ethical or fair. Welcome to the world. I don't think any boy is going to crumble under a world in which they are not immediately believed. For a millennium, little girls have been coming to their parents or not coming to the parents at all because they didn't think their own families would believe them. And the female species somehow survived. So if the burden of proof shifts ever so slightly to the male species, my boys will be fine, and so will yours. And what we can teach our children is that probably somewhere in your life at some point, somebody might say something about you that's false. Yeah. That happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. And you got to be able to handle that. And maybe that makes you emotional. This was a big point of discussion in some of my life today. Oh, my Lord. You can be emotional, but combative, No. Because the more combative you get, the less credible you seem. And you have to be able to handle these things. When you know that you are right, you got to put your feet on the ground and say so without trying to tell everyone the world still revolves around me. Mm -hmm. The unfairness to me is the most important Important thing thing. in this equation. I mean, seriously. It's not. The world is full of chaos and unfairness and injustice. Welcome to the party. Jesus. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the thing is, Brett Kavanaugh hasn't been to that party, really. Clearly. He's been to a lot, but not that one. Oh, my God. I cannot. I cannot with that idea. I just, that is so infuriating to me. And the idea that the worst thing that could ever happen to my boys is that someone would falsely accuse them of something. 
And I mean, we just we all have to do better than this. I felt so sad for his children when he kept saying his family had been destroyed. I feel I so sad for his children anyway. I'm so sorry for his children, no matter what the facts are here. I'm so sorry for his children. I know. At one, one point I was like, what's the definition of that? Yeah, they're going to be OK. Your like, kids are going to be OK. You're going to be OK if you don't get to coach softball anymore. Yes. You're, there you're are people who fine. sit on death row for crimes they didn't commit, dude. And again, a decision not to put him on the Supreme Court does not convict him. It does not mean there are going to be criminal charges filed. It does not mean that he's going to be taken off of the D.C. Circuit. It just means that he didn't get the promotion. That's it. We've, like, we've got to figure out what we're talking about. If you wanted to go through life where everyone, everyone thought you were the good man you believe yourself to be and would accept you as you believe yourself to be and would never doubt you or accuse you or call you evil, then Supreme Court justice is not the gig for you. Not in today's day and age, friend. Not in today's day and age. The thing that you said about um, women not talking to their parents or reporting, the one thing that I want to share that we haven't talked about before is that I think we, in this whole conversation about people should have come forward or it shouldn't have been so long, whatever, I don't think that we appreciate the complexity of that question and and specifically the internal complexity. So there's the, the whole shame factor associated with other people, especially in very religious families mm-hmm. around this topic. Mm-hmm. But there's also just the... I think a lot of us have to work through, did that happen the way I think it happened? Mm-hmm. Surely that didn't happen. Did it? And and there's this whole, it it takes sometimes a whole lot of therapy and a lot of time to convince yourself that what you experienced is what you experienced. Or it's even if you experienced it, why it happened to you. It's really hard. I don't know what it is in our human psychology But when even things that are truly accidental and tragic, our human brains want to find a reason and blame ourselves. Absolutely. And that happens with sexual assault, too. People, it's even if they, oh, my God, that happened, it becomes it happened because I deserved it because I didn't I didn't deserve. I'm not the kind of girl men want to treat differently. That's heartbreaking. And that's why I raise it, because we are hurting each other in these conversations if, if we're having conversations just uh, around dinner tables and in restaurants and in the mall and in the workplace where we're saying, you know, well, this is so unfair to him. Okay, can you take a second and consider the likelihood that somebody around you has been through a genuine sexual assault or other form of abuse and has done this really complex psychological obstacle course to make sense of it for themselves and you're hurting them and you don't know about about it it this way yeah also you just might not know at all like i loved all the the discussion about chris wallace where he was like no my teenage daughters have schooled me about this like he didn't even know and it was his own kids you don't always know you don't know the rock in my shoe man so i hear you on We don't want to rush to convict someone of a crime. Can you hear me on? Also, we don't want to hurt our neighbors in these conversations. 
And so, again, I don't know is a good place to be. Asking questions is a good place to be. Sometimes just being silent and taking it all in is a good place to be. But we don't need to hurt each other anymore through these discussions. I just feel like we are just over and over opening people's wounds and asking them to live it all again. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the story starts to die down, something new comes up and opens that wound again. It's too much. It's totally unsustainable. And I feel like today it wasn't even enough to do that with just people who had experienced sexual assault. We had to add in alcohol abuse. The way they talked about Mark Judge was really disturbing to me. And it was almost like he was saying, well, you need to believe him, but you don't need to ask him here because he's not really dependable because he's an addict. Oh, yeah, he wrote a memoir, but he just pulled my name, my real person's name out of the hat and fictionalized the account. Like, because you, he clearly did not want to admit the extent of his drinking. He didn't, but he also wanted to be like the cool drinker guy. It was yes, so weird. it was and, such a weird thing. And he also made all these allusions to the redacted portion of his testimony to the committee that he did on the phone. And I read that testimony and I felt the way that he was talking about his freshman roommate insinuated some kind of mental health issue there as well, really unfairly. You know, there are all these people who aren't there to speak on their own behalfs. And it, it, it disturbed me just as a former lawyer to watch his characterization of evidence. Yep. That, his testimony is conclusive, that his um, calendars are conclusive. Mm -hmm. But her therapy notes aren't. All of these people who are really central to the process don't need to be here to weigh in. I can just make conclusory statements about them. Mm -hmm. I was really uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with the therapy notes, too. I would hate for therapy notes to start to be abused in these processes. I would hate for a woman to come forward and not have corroborating therapy notes and be thought a liar because of that. All the damage to that was for not because they never treated them as corroborating ever. Yeah. They never, they yeah. said, they kept saying it's uncorroborated. And I was like, no, they're, no, it's not. That's what the therapy notes do. You people are lawyers. Don't you understand this? But, you know, they're not just, trying to understand it. No, that's they're the not. And Nicholas, my husband, was like, "This, it, they don't want to be right. They want to win. And that's what's just yeah. so, it's so hard not to get cynical watching today. It was, re- I mean, I'm not sure I succeeded, to be honest. I'm not sure I succeeded watching that and just being like, like you said, why did we do this? I mean, except for, I think, I, ha- I have to believe, I have to believe the chickens will come home to roost. But I don't know. I don't know. There's one sort of inspiring narrative that I don't buy about all of this. I think it's really tempting to buy into every woman is empowered by hearing this testimony. Mm-hmm. I don't feel empowered today. I I applaud her. I thought she was as credible and vulnerable and brave as she could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And it makes me just mad that she had to do that. Yeah. I, I don't. I think it feels good to say, like, yay, women telling their stories. But I'm just tired of women having to do that. I'm mm-hmm. tired of women having to put their whole lives online. I'm tired of having to have hashtags to explain to people that this is a real thing. I feel like women have done enough of that work for America. And it is time for us to move past that. What I found, the only thing I came away today feeling really hopeful about is knowing that women converted what they felt 
after the Clarence Thomas hearings into real action. And I feel like we're at a moment now when women came into this a little bit more pissed off than they came into Clarence Thomas Mm -hmm. and exited way more pissed off than they came into it. And so and and we are approaching an election with lots of really great qualified women candidates on the ballot. So I am hopeful that this will convert into productive action. I hope so, because I think I mean, the hard truth of this. I shared an article in our our Patreon email about from 538 that the divide here is not on gender. It's on party. How you see this is not about your gender. It's about what party you belong to. And that is so depressing to me. It is so depressing that you could witness what happened today. And it's not even that, look, I don't need you to agree wholeheartedly. But to at least acknowledge some of the reality of what happened to her and how credible her testimony was, how defensive he seemed like there just was, there was no give from anybody. No give on either side. And that, it just, it's so hard to be hopeful in the face of that when it, it does feel like we see, we are witnessing, we're living in two different realities. And the polling on that gets harder to understand because I don't know who calls themselves a Republican. Like, mm-hmm. would I call myself a Republican if I got a polling call right now? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know? That's true. I'm a conservative, but I don't, I don't know. Well, speaking of women candidates doing good things, making real change, we are going to share with you next our conversation with Crystal Quaid, who represents the 132nd House District in Missouri. Our listener, Ryan from Missouri, recommended that we talk to Crystal because she is a social worker who has gone to the Capitol in Missouri to fight for low-income families, to try to combat the opioid epidemic, and to work on ethics reform. We need more of this in the world, so that will be coming up after our break. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So I am a mother of three. I've got um, two step kiddos and then uh, we have a younger one who just turned four and um, I am a social worker by education and I um, won my first election in 2016 and I decided to run for office honestly about 10 years before that. Um, When I was studying social work, I took a policy course and when I was in that class, realized very quickly how much policy affected what I wanted to do as a social worker. So I decided to do my practicum, which is our internship um, in our state capital of Jefferson City as a legislative intern. And when I got to Jefferson City, I honestly, within the first week of being there, realized that so few of our elected officials understood the issues surrounding poverty and that we needed more people in that room who got it. And uh, I'm a first-generation high school graduate, um, and I grew up, my mom was a single mom for most of my life, um, and then remarried, and um, my wonderful stepfather got us out of that situation. Um, But for most of my life, I saw my mom wait tables, she walked to work, she had to balance it all as a single parent. Um, You know, and then being a social worker, under studying poverty even more, you know, so, so much of my legislative district, the state of Missouri and the country as a whole are working families who are, you know, one incident away from losing everything. And so when I was a college student and spent time in Jefferson City, I I really believed that we needed that perspective at the table. And so then everything I did after that got me to where I am right now. Crystal, can I ask you this? Yeah, I think that it's not just elected officials who um, don't understand poverty. Can you tell me, can you just share with our listeners what you think sort of 
the most common misconceptions generally are about people who live in poverty? Definitely. Um, I would say, uh, you know, there's such an array, but poverty is definitely a culture. And um, the way folks think and plan is vastly different for those who live in poverty every day. And so one of the biggest misconceptions I hear is that folks are just not working hard, that, you know, they don't want to get out of that situation. Um, whereas everyone, you know, when I knocked doors in my district, we knocked uh, several, uh, you know, about 40,000 times the first year. And so many people that I talked to were working sometimes two or three jobs um, and still had to rely on the state for support for various things. And so these are our most often people who really want out of that situation, um, but there's just policies in, in the way of allowing them to succeed. And so, you know, the one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is that people want to be in that, that environment. You've been really open about how Jefferson City is, is lacking the kinds of life experiences that you bring to the table. How did you find that being a person who represents a perspective that's not otherwise represented during your first term? You mean, how did my openness, how was that received? I think that's interesting, too. I'm wondering more for you, did you feel like the the kind of outsider at the table? And um, how, how was it working with people who, who were representing kind of one perspective with you coming in to bring another? Outside of yes and no. Um, I fortunately, after college, I went and worked for the U.S. Senate doing constituent services work. Um, and then I did some campaign work um, under Organizing for America um, before I went back into the nonprofit sector. So I have been engaged in the political process for a really long time. So I probably knew more than most freshman elected officials about just the culture of Jefferson City. Um, but definitely it's different when, you know, you're, you're surrounded by, frankly, older white gentlemen in Jefferson City. Um, out of 163 representatives, only 34 are women. Um, and so it's a, a very different um, perspective, of course. And so I, I think in terms of how I felt, it was my biggest, I don't want to say struggle, but one of my biggest um, opportunities that I really focused on was trying to provide that different perspective and change minds about the way people think about my constituents. Um, and just opening that dialogue, um, particularly with, you know, I'm, I'm part of the super minority Democratic Party, so I'm also working with a lot of um, conservative colleagues. And so for me, it was about having that opportunity to really expose people to something that they haven't been exposed to. I read this morning about your work on the cliff effect and about you doing just what you described, working across the aisle and and holding hearings that brought in a lot of real life emotional testimony about the child care cliff. Can you talk a little bit about that issue? Yeah, definitely. So um, in the state of Missouri and, and frankly, many states across the country, um, when folks are receiving a child care subsidy to go back to work. So these are most often single single parents. Um, but not always. And um, they are working full time. And they, so then they receive a state subsidy based on how much money they make and then how, how many kiddos they have, too. So we've got it's based on federal poverty levels like many social uh, programs are. And what I found as a social worker in, in my work before becoming a legislator, um, but then also something I heard constantly at the doors where people, again, were working full time. And the moment that they would get a pay raise, it would kick them off of the state subsidy program. Um, and so people were forced to choose between either working more hours or getting that raise. Um, and so that could be, you know, 10 cents an hour, and then they would lose four to $500 a month in childcare. 
So people often would not choose the, the pay raise because they just mathematically could not make it work. Um, so again, we have hardworking people who want to better themselves and want to get out of this situation, but, they, but because of our failed policies, simply can't. Um, so in Missouri, uh, several years before I was elected, we implemented trying to do a sliding scale concept um, where you would essentially wean folks off the program. Um, but the way that we set it up just didn't work. And so we had it implemented for uh, several years, I believe four years, um, this program called the Hand Up Program was uh, established, and we had not had anyone actually make it through the program um, because of the parameters we set on the front end. Um, so, yeah, so I uh, worked across the aisle. I actually found a Republican co-sponsor my freshman year. His wife is a school counselor, so he was familiar with it. When we got to talking about it, he said, oh, you know, she's my wife has talked about that, but he just didn't know what it was. Um, and so... He, he sponsored the bill. I sponsored it. We both filed the exact same bill, so we were able to roll them together to create a pilot program to uh, put forward the solutions that I thought could help with, with what uh, we had in place already. And um, we had a hearing, and it went great, um, but it, it didn't get anywhere as often first-time bills don't. Um, so in my second term, I actually filed it by myself, um, and I had a senator file it on the, in the other chamber so that we had it moving along um, both chambers at the same time. And I actually had it go through the budget committee, which I serve on, um, and we got it out 28 to 1. Um, and then it went to our rules committee, which is our second stop, made it out of that committee as well. It just didn't make it to the House floor. So what are the next steps? And I think this is really helpful to talk about for all the women who are running for office for the first time are considering it, that it's a long haul on some of these issues. What is your next step when something like that happens? I would say first, one of the things that I have learned since being a legislator is, um, you know, you put forward a policy idea and it's always going to be changing. Um, I tried really hard my first year to get it perfect before I did anything, um, which I think women tend to do with anything in our lives. Um, and because of that waiting to get it perfect, um, we were delayed in the process. Um, and since that, I've learned, you know, that that policy needs to be fluid um, because we will find out new things um, or come up with better practices. And so we've actually altered this bill probably four times at this point. And so in terms of next steps, I'm actually in meetings where we're in our interim right now. So we don't go back until January. Hopefully I win my reelection. I get to. Um, so I've actually been in meetings with um, folks who work for Children's Division and other child care workers and social workers. Uh, and we're actually going to tweak the bill again um, and because we've come up with some better ways to get this done and hopefully more cost effective ways. Um, and so I will continue that um, you know, policy process throughout the interim and then we'll file it again. Um, because I got it out of the budget committee, uh, we'll probably send it back there. And uh, the Senate got it out of their committee as well. I've been working with the um, majority leadership um, to get it to the floor, and I've gotten some commitments from people that they will help get it through the process. So it's really at this point about maintaining those relationships and establishing the good relationships I need to have so that we can get the bill through the process. Mm. I love that formulation. Of, it seems, you know, it seems very flipped from what you normally hear, which is the only thing that matters is that my, is, are my priorities. And otherwise, you know, sort of everyone else be darned. But now yeah. I love that you sort of have flipped it and your emphasis is on the relationships to move your priorities forward. I just think that's really great. 
Yeah, and it's definitely, you know, in the climate we have in Missouri, I, as a su- member of the super minority party, as we call it, you know, I, you have to find those relationships. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think that's what brings good government. Get folks from all perspectives at the table. Because, you know, I, as I come in and, and I'm a social worker and I think understand all of it, right? But then we've been meeting with the budget people and the folks who really understand the money side of it. And there's just a lot that, there's no way that one legislator can know everything. Right. And if, if we did, then we wouldn't need to do any of what we're doing, right? Um, so it's a, it's a lot about being open to the conversation of altering what your ideas are. Well, I know that you are also working on health insurance issues and, and specifically on the coverage gap. And it strikes me as I look at the cliff effect and the coverage gap that your social worker hat is fully on in informing your policy. And I love that. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah. Um, so Missouri is one of the states that has not expanded Medicaid. And so with that, we've seen a lot of, and this is a partisan perspective, of course, but we've had a lot of our rural hospitals close. Um, And so we are currently struggling with how we provide care to people, um, but then also do it in a financially sound way. Um, Missouri is not, you know, when I first came in the legislature, we were about $500 million upside down in our budget. Um, And it's getting better, um, but we still have a long way to go. Um, But with that, like you said, comparatively to the cliff effect, we similar situation where we have people who may not qualify for Medicaid because they um, took a better paying job and now they just we, they don't have care. Um, and Missouri also is a state that um, most are single adults who don't have children don't qualify at all. So um, there is a huge gap there. So in terms of what we're doing, we are really looking more at Medicaid transformation and trying to find um, cost savings within the current program. Um, and there, there's a lot to be found. Um, and then, but then also finding ways that we can expand coverage in for the most vulnerable people while doing it in, in a, again, a cost-effective way. So one bill that got through this year, and um, it was sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats, and we had some fabulous women um, on the health committee who sponsored this bill, and I couldn't be more proud of them. And um, what that is, is we are in Missouri before this. If you were a new mom, you only had Medicaid coverage for a month after birth. Um, so we have, have expanded it now. So if you are actually a um, substance addicted mother um, and you are going through those programs within the state and you have a baby, you will have your Medicaid coverage for an entire year post birth. So, you know, studies show that that when mom is healthy, baby's healthy and we're going to have better outcomes, more cost effective outcomes. So that's that's a bill that we got through this year. We got it funded in the budget and um, are, I'm very excited to see how that works out. Um, for, for our moms, you know, so we are, again, trying to find things within the current Medicaid structure that isn't expansion, but is providing more care. <laughs> so finding that happy medium. I know that another issue that you're really focused on is campaign finance reform. And I think that for me, reading about your position on this, it struck me for the first time that states have a role to play there. And I've really not thought about that before. I'm wondering um, what the reaction to that has been. And can you tell us a little bit about your position on that? In Missouri, we don't have a whole lot of regulation around campaign contributions, lobbyist gifts, and that sort of thing. And um, we also, so then let me back up. In 2016, we had an, uh, an amendment on the ballot um, for, um, to change campaign finance reform. And it passed, um, which is great because it shows that the citizens of Missouri weren't happy with just unlimited amounts of money from corporations or from whomever and with 
not a lot of tracking behind that. And also unlimited lobbyists get Um, Unfortunately, that amendment that we passed to the Constitution had a lot wrong with it. And so what we've seen now um, is a lot of what folks are referring to to dark money. So now in Missouri, it is much harder to track where money is coming from. Um, And we have there's plenty of lawsuits. I'm sure you saw what happened with Missouri's last governor. Um, We there's been a lot going on around that in terms of how it's been received. you know, both both parties in Missouri sponsored some bills last year um, trying to put some teeth, per se, in our ethics commission and um, adding some things to the, the gift, the lobbyist gifts. And also we had a whole package of bills. And um, I can tell you the Democrat bills had one hearing, but we never got a vote on the hearing and they never went any further. Um, the same with the few Republican bills that were filed. Nothing actually came of it. Um, in my personal opinion, it looks really great to all say that we want to clean up Jefferson City, um, but in terms of actual action, nothing is coming of it. Um, so fortunately, again, in, in November this year, we have uh, something that I'm in favor of, which is called Clean Missouri, which is a, a, going to be an, another amendment to, that will actually do it right. <laughs> it, it has a $5 lo- lobbyist uh, limit. To gifts, so you know, if um, we have some organizations like child abuse and neglect organizations that may bring us a doll and right. have story, you know, so we the the folks who are working on this wanted to al- allow those people to still lobby in that way, um, but not having us, us get free steak dinners anymore. <laughs> so um, that that is something that is a bipartisanly supported initiative that's going to be on the November ballot, and I'm really hopeful it gets done. I mean, that's that's been that way in D.C., which is it didn't fix all the problems, obviously, right. Right. but it sure as heck helped. Folks have a lot of misconceptions about all of that. And if you don't work in that environment, you know, yeah. um, you know, somebody intimidating. Me, yeah. And I mean, I can honestly say if someone was to buy me a steak dinner, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to do whatever they want me to do. Um, right. But but at the end of the day, you know, it's just not clean and it, and it's not transparent. Mm-hmm. And I think that I know that's what my constituents are really looking for is trans- transparency and honesty. And I think that if we have some real reforms in Missouri, it would help with that. What are you hearing as you are campaigning for re-election? And can you tell us about the difference between your first time seeking office and your re-election campaign? The things that we're hearing right now in the district, um, there's, honestly, there's not a lot different between 2016 and now in terms of what people are frustrated with. Um, we you know, healthcare is a big thing for my district. And in the past two years, Missouri has uh, slashed coverage for uh, low-income seniors and people with disabilities. We actually took away a prescription drug program for some people. And so folks are still struggling in healthcare. It's just in different ways now. Um, folks are still frustrated with um, with our elected officials, to be honest. You know, we had a governor that had to resign just a few months months ago due to corruption and, and abuse and some things that were happening. So people are still very frustrated with the way government is operating. Um, and so I'm hearing a lot of the same things. You know, in 2016, folks were extremely disgusted with the presidential race and how dirty it was getting um, and the back and forth. But people are still frustrated with with the top office and and have a lot of a lot of things to say about the way that that's functioning. Um, so it's it honestly isn't that different in terms of the things I'm hearing. People are still struggling to pay their bills and feed their kids. Um, what's different for me now is it's I, it's so much better because I can now knock a door and say, hey, I'm your state representative. I'm running for re-election, but I'm, 
I want to talk to you. Like, how do you think I'm doing? Mm. <laughs> and so it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, when I first knocked doors, I, I didn't knock with like that I'm crystal and this is what I'm going to do for you. I still ask the question and that's honestly why the cliff effect became such a priority for me. Cause I often would ask, you know, I want to run for state rep. This is who I am, but what is important to you and what do you think is lacking right now in Jefferson city? I still have that conversation, but I can do it from a perspective of like I've been there and do you think I'm doing enough for you? And what do you want? What do you want to see me do that? I haven't been doing. So it's much more of a conversation now. It takes a lot longer to knock doors, <laughs> um, but it's, I really enjoy it. And it's, a relatively newer thing where your elected official comes to talk to you. Um, you know, folks have always knocked doors, but it's, um, I, I'm just, I think people are pleasantly surprised when their state representative comes to their door. Oh, that's so good to hear as I'm about to start to knock doors for my first re-election campaign. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I know people, it's been, it's been great, honestly. I, I have not had any negatives um, so far, so it's good. Good. You mentioned that people have feelings about the top office and and how our government is functioning. How difficult is it to navigate those conversations, given that you are a state representative? I would say, honestly, the more difficult piece is that I am from a decently 50-50 district, but I'm a very progressive Democrat. And so um, a lot of it more is the partisanness of those conversations, um, because as a state representative, you know, I... I can tell you in 2016, when folks would bring it up, I would often say, you know, we can't control what happens at the national level, but we can control what happens in Missouri. And that's why I'm running, which was a great, great tagline to say. And people really loved that. Um, I can still have that conversation um, to an extent. But now as an elected official, it's almost like I have more responsibility over the way elected officials um, present themselves. And so I I still kind of have that conversation of, you know, we what's going on in, in the national level is can be frustrating. Um, but what I've found now is people want to talk a little bit more about the national policies and if there's anything we can do at the state level. Um, so I've, it's almost been more of like civics conversations about um, what we can do here in Missouri to, for whatever specific issue they're frustrated about on the national level, which has been interesting. I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I think <laughs> one of the few silver linings of the past couple of years is how much information people are starting to get about just the structures of our systems and um, the interests people are taking. So that's I think that's really encouraging to hear. Yeah, it's been really great. And that's something I've really strived to do as a state representative. You know, I I'm a millennial, so I use social media a lot. And, um, you know, every day during session, um, several of, of us will type up these huge, huge Facebook posts that any social media guru would tell you it's way too long for people to read. Um, <laughs> but really trying to educate our people about what's happening. Because, um, you know, we're, we're only in Jeff City for five months. And um, a lot happens. We're in there for 12, 14 hour days debating things. And so we will do full on synopsis like several times a day about the bills that we're debating, things that people are saying on the floor, and really just trying to educate our people about what's going on day to day. And it's been, the, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. People love it. And, um, and I'm seeing that effect on the doors too. Like people are way more engaged than I think they've ever been. What do you want people who are thinking about running for office to know? If you could give some advice, especially to young women who are considering running for office, what would you say? I would say not to wait until it feels right. <laughs> um, I, I like a lot of things, you know, becoming a parent. I don't know that everything is always perfect in terms of timing. 
Um, and I and I'll also say, don't wait your turn. Um, when I first decided to run, um, I had some folks say, well, maybe you should start with school board or city council. Why would you go straight to the state house? And um, just don't let folks tell you it's not you're not ready yet. If you think you're ready and it's good time for your family and your career to do this, just jump in. And you're never going to feel like you're doing it right. You're never going to feel good enough. You're always going to feel like there's more work to do. Um, but those are all really good things. It keeps us grounded as elected officials, I think, to to know that we're not always going doing it right and that there's more to do. Um, part of this, um, one of the big things I've been trying to do is candidate recruitment across our state. Um, our party has not done a great job in years past of having people run. We actually had um, about 60, uh, a little more than that, folks in 2016 walk in uncontested. Um, and no, I'm sorry, 97. 97 out of, 100, out of 163 went uncontested in 2016. So a lot of us worked really hard to get folks to run this year. And so many women, I, I specifically targeted women, I won't lie about that, but so many of them would say, you know, I just don't know if it's the right time for my kids. You know, is it a good time to leave my job? And, you know, f there was just so much hesitation. Um, I think it's a good thing to self-reflect, but I think often as women, we think we're not good enough or we're not qualified enough or, you know, we, we put everyone else's needs, so to speak, ahead of our own in terms of whether it's the right time to make a risk or to, to take a risk and make a jump like that. And just to tell women it's okay. Like, would a man sit there and question himself like that? Probably not. And the other side's not going to, you know, whichever side you're on. Um, and so just trying to give women the confidence to, to know that it's okay to say yes. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Crystal. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And good luck in your reelection campaign. Yeah, we'll definitely. be excited to see how things go for you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining us for a lengthy Friday edition of Fancy Politics. But there's a lot going on in the world, and we're here with you, and we are grateful that you're here with us. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To get more Pantsuit Politics, you can become a supporter and receive special bonus features at patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics and sign up to receive our weekly newsletters at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.